thank the maker for his kindness. But while I lived there in Fillmore, I discovered something. I discovered how deep the farmer's love is for growing good fruit. These farmers cared deeply about everything that was happening in their farms. One day I was out in a grove talking to a farmer. I think I was doing a middle school science project that had something to do with soil uh, soil pH balance or something like that. I was talking with one of the farmers and he was telling me about the relationship between the fruit on the branches and everything else going on in the orchard, everything else going on in the groves, down to the sunshine and the amount of rain, the pH balance of the soil, the whole history of the place. He began to tear up, I still remember, as he described the painstaking process by which his father before him had walked through this grove with a shovel, removing rocks by hand from the sun-beaten soil so that there would be more space and freedom for the roots of the tree to spread out and nourish the good fruits that they wanted to grow. Oh, how deep the farmers love. You see, while I lived there in Fillmore, California, I discovered that good farmers love growing good fruit. For good farmers, it's not just a business. It's not just something that makes money. For good farmers, they love growing good fruit. And when they hand you one of their oranges, and they watch you peel it, the smile and the warmth that radiates from their face, it's a beautiful thing. And I bring all of that up because here in our passage, there's something that we need to understand in order to understand kind of the pictures that are given to us throughout this passage. What we need to understand is that like a good farmer, God loves growing good fruits. This is a key idea, a key thread that runs through this whole passage. In fact, this is a picture of God that is common throughout the Hebrew Bible. It has perhaps its most famous expression when it describes God as a farmer who oversees a vineyard. You notice in verse 28 and verse 33 of our passage today, the location of this farm is a wine farm, a grape farm, a vineyard. And in Isaiah chapter 5, the Lord is described... Uh, is described with these words, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. You see, like a good farmer... Our God loves growing good fruit. But there is a problem that our God has run into since ancient times. The problem was highlighted in Isaiah chapter 5, which goes on from saying that 
He looked for a crop of good grapes, but instead his vineyard yielded only bad fruit. And then in Isaiah chapter 5, the prophetic word of Isaiah turns this word picture to those who claim to worship the Lord. And Isaiah says, in essence, you who claim to worship the Lord, this problem of the Lord doing everything He could to bring about a good harvest, this problem of finding only bad fruit instead, this isn't about those out there in the world who never take the name of the Lord on their lips. Isaiah looks around at the gathering of those who claim to worship the Lord and he says, this is an opportunity for you to check your own heart, to check your own life, to check what kind of fruit is emerging in your life. Which brings us to a shocking miracle that we read about here in Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 through 22. Jesus comes, Jesus has arrived, as we read about last week in Matthew 20 and 21. Jesus has arrived at the Lord's temple, the second temple, we might say. This isn't the temple that Solomon had built, this is another one. Jesus arrives at the second temple. And he turns tables, saying this is supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, a place where people hide their stolen goods. And he goes out, and then our text picks up in verse 18, and it says, the next morning, as he was returning to the city, He became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he says to it, May no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withers at once. And you notice the disciples' quick reaction, What did you just do? And how did you do that? Now, By this point in Matthew's gospel, by this point in the ministry of Jesus, it's not surprising that Jesus has miracles surrounding him. That's not surprising. But you know what is surprising? That Jesus is doing a destructive miracle. He's not doing a miracle as he does so often throughout the Gospels, as he did in the passage that we read last week, in which he meets somebody who can't see and he heals them, restoring eyesight. That's the kind of miracle that we're used to seeing Jesus perform. But at this moment, he kind of does the opposite. He finds a tree that looks okay and he causes it to wither. What in the world is going on with this. It's a unique kind of miracle. It's recorded in other Gospels as well. But it's the only instance we know of where Jesus' miraculous powers destroy rather than give life. What is going on with that? If I could tangent a little bit for a second as we answer this question, what is going on with that? Maybe it helps to think a little bit about what the miracles are like in general. 
C.S. Lewis, who was not a Christian, uh, but was a professor of English at Oxford, became a Christian, and often throughout his life thought and reflected about the meaning of miracles in the life of Jesus. And in one of his beautiful essays about the meaning of miracles, he points out that very often when Jesus does miracles, Jesus is representing what the Father has been doing across the centuries, but he's doing it in miniature right now, right before our eyes. And so, for example, when Jesus performs his very first miracle and he turns water into wine... This is miraculous. How did he do that and how did it happen so fast? C.S. Lewis looks at this and he points out, wait a second. But that miraculous transformation of water to wine is actually what the Father has been doing across the centuries and around the world back to the days of Noah. He's been taking common, ordinary Things in this world and through a long, slow fermentation process has been turning ordinary things into wine. And now Jesus shows up at a wedding and he does the father's work, but he does it in an instant in a way that draws our attention to the power of God to take what is ordinary and make it something beautiful and extraordinary in order to bless a wedding. Or you think about You think about what Jesus does when he feeds thousands of people with a few loaves and a few fish. That's miraculous. It's crazy to think about a few loaves and a few fish. Has anything like this ever been seen? But C.S. Lewis says, yes, things like that have been seen because that is exactly what the Father has been doing around the world and across the ages. He's been taking a few grains placed into the ground and multiplying them thousandfold. A few grains multiplied out to feed hundreds or thousands. This is what farming is generation after generation. But Jesus stops all of a sudden and focuses our attention in on the life-giving, providing, merciful power of God being expressed by Him, not across seasons of planting and plowing and, uh, and watering and harvest, but in an instant, these few things multiply out for thousands. You get the rhythm of this, right? Very often, what Jesus does in his miracles is what the Father has been doing over long, slow processes brought into focus all of a sudden. How about this peculiar miracle? In a similar way, what Jesus does in this focused miracle, well, It's not what Elsa does in Frozen. It's not a momentary loss of control. It's not a momentary outburst of emotions that are beyond control from within. It's not something that Jesus doesn't understand and doesn't know what to do with. What is going on here? Jesus is very purposefully putting on display what God has been doing generation after generation around the world, things that are green slowly begin to wither. 
as Paul Simon puts it, leaves that are green turn to brown. I thought I'd get an amen from someone who was alive in the 60s. And Jesus does it all of a sudden in an instant. Leaves that are green, leaves that look okay, they're going to turn to brown. In every generation since the fall of humanity, since death was unleashed as a warning about the seriousness of humanity's sin in this world, in every generation, leaves that are green have been turning to brown. Things that looked alive begin to wither. Things move toward an end of death. And Jesus here, having come to the temple the day before, and as he's returning to the temple today, as he's going back to the place where people gather in order to worship the Lord, and having found it to be not a place of prayer for the nations, but a den of robbers, Jesus says, I need to focus your attention in this moment on what the Lord has been saying across the centuries There might be some signs of life around you right now, but leaves that are green turn to brown. Things that may have some signs of life today have an end that is coming. And if there is not the kind of fruit that God loves to grow, then this miracle stands as a warning. It stands as a warning in alignment with the message that we've heard throughout the book of Matthew going back to the announcement of John the Baptist to the religious leaders of the day who are about to walk back into the scene here again. A message in alignment with that message of John the Baptist, a message that says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Why? Because just because you can say I'm alive today, doesn't mean that you'll be alive forever. Leaves that are green eventually turn to brown. Things that have a few signs of life, but not the fruit of the kingdom, are heading toward death. This is the sobering miracle that Jesus does. And it's interesting, the disciples come and they say, how did that happen so quickly? And Jesus answers in a way that... that you know, Jesus' answer is not, well, if you learn to flick your wrist the right way, you can do this too. Jesus' answer is not, if you just say the words with the right tone of voice, then you'll have triumph and you can do all kinds of crazy stuff. Jesus' answer is in a way that draws attention not even to his own unique power. He answers in a way that says, how did this happen? By the power of faith, by the power of prayer. And what is the power of faith? What is the power of prayer? It's the power of God. At work in the present time. Jesus draws attention to this, I think, to make clear. This isn't some outburst of a temper tantrum on his part. 
This is the activity of God. Who once spoke to those who claimed to worship him and warned them that he had done everything he could do that they might bear fruit. But when he came looking for good fruit, he found only bad fruit. And the warning in Isaiah chapter 5 verse 5 goes like this. Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. Leaves that were once green will turn to brown. What Jesus is doing in this passage is he is Picturing for people in a moment what God has been doing across time. He is speaking, he is showing to people in a moment what God spoke through Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5 to those who claimed to worship God. If you claim to worship God today, pay attention to what fruit there is in your life. What kinds of fruit concerns might Jesus have? I won't belabor all of these at the same amount of time. I'll take the first a little more quickly. But let's notice three fruit problems that show up in the passages that follow here. The first fruit problem that shows up we see in verses 23 through 27. The first fruit problem is basically this. Good question, but disease shows up in the answers. In verses 23 through 27... The religious leaders begin to confront Jesus as he enters the temple and they ask a question, by what authority are you doing these things? I would say that's a good question. In fact, I don't know if you connect the dots right away when you hear that question, but that question is one of the most important questions in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, which begins by identifying Jesus as the son of David. The book of Matthew ends with Matthew chapter 20, verses 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, where Jesus says, All blank in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What is that blank? Authority. Authority. You see how important this issue of authority is to Matthew. And so Matthew takes particular notice that as Jesus enters the temple and the leaders come and confront him, they're asking a good question, by what authority? By what authority are you going to rearrange the furniture of the temple? By what authority are you going to make way for the nations? By what authority are you going to make trees wither as if it is some kind of prophetic sign against us? By what authority, Jesus? Good question. But a certain kind of fruit disease will show up in the answering. In kind of old-fashioned, rabbinic, Jewish fashion, Jesus answers a question with a question. Ah, I have a question for you. Good question. I have one for you. By whose authority did John do what he did? They gather together. They think about it. They reason. 
And they come back to Jesus saying, you know, they, they say to one another, we are afraid of the crowd, verse 26. You see what's going on. They know the answer to Jesus' question. Jesus' question is not evasive. They know the answer to it. Jesus' question in reply to a question actually leads them right to the answer that they know. By whose authority did John do what he did? But here's a first kind of fruit disease, or a first kind of disease beneath the bad fruits, or a first kind of disease beneath the lack of fruit among those who claim to worship the Lord. It's a disease of being swayed too much by fear to the point of not being willing to answer the foundational question about Jesus' relationship with authority. First fruit problem. Good question. But disease shows up in the answers. Second fruit problem that shows up shows up in a story that Jesus tells and explains from verse 28 down to verse 32. And I would summarize the second fruit problem like this. Good answers, but disease shows up in the work. Jesus has here a story that he tells. It's kind of a fun one. Um, It takes place in a vineyard. Why? Because that's often how the Lord is pictured in Hebrew prophecy, working in a vineyard. Since most of us aren't vineyard workers, we might just think of a kid's bedroom. Kids, I want you to clean your room today. One kid says, right on it, Dad. The other kid says, I'm sick of this. The first kid who says, I'm on it, Dad, runs away to his room. A few minutes later, Dad comes to inspect the scene. It's inspection time. And here is his son who said, I'm on it, Dad. On a device, playing a video game. Chatting with his friends. With the room a greater mess than it was before. And dad says, I thought you said you would clean your room. And the son says, oh don't worry, I'm talking to my friends about it right now. This kid's got all the right answers. He knows how to answer the questions. But the disease, the fruit disease, shows up somewhere at the level of work. Somewhere at the level of actually taking steps. This, of course, is a rebuke to the religious leaders who are confronting Jesus and saying, by what authority? And Jesus is saying to them in a way, 
You're like a tree. There are some signs of life, green leaves. But the fruit of the kingdom, where is it? You know the right answers. But where is the fruit of the kingdom? The rebuke goes even further and comes with, I might say, a glimmer of hope as Jesus takes it a step further and begins to apply the second child in the story. The kid who says to dad, I'm tired of this. I don't want to. The kid who maybe even says to dad, nope. But then changes his mind, has a change of heart, and goes and does what the Father had asked him to do. You see, through that kind of pivot, Jesus is picturing people who would have been known in the first century as prostitutes or tax collectors. People who had made Big decisions in life, repeated decisions in life, that in a way said to God, nope. And yet later had a change of mind, a change of heart, that led them to begin following the Lord. Jesus says to those who claim to worship God, prostitutes, the tax collectors, they're actually entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. It's a stinging rebuke for some who feel life is all good. What do I need? I got the right answers. Been doing the religious stuff my whole life. This is a stinging rebuke. And it comes with a glimmer of hope, especially for those of us who may start to think about the fruit in our lives and who may begin to worry, is it too late for me? Because the fruit in my life hasn't always been what I would want it to be. The fruit that has come out of my life doesn't all line up with the Sermon on the Mount. The fruit in my life doesn't all line up with God's revealed will for for my life in the Bible. And so maybe we begin to worry, is it too late for me? If God, like a good farmer, cares about growing good fruits, maybe it's too late. But you hear the glimmer of hope that's built into Jesus' story, right? The kingdom of heaven is not full of people who spent their whole lives feeling like, I got this. Listen to me. The kingdom of heaven is full of people who sinned and who know it who messed up and who blew it, 
whose lives are not chock full of good works from beginning to end, but who had a change of minds, a turning, a recognition. The fruit in my life isn't what it should be. But perhaps the Lord will show me mercy. Listen to me, the kingdom of heaven is not full of those whose lives have been one unending story after another of saying, I got this and look at how great the green stuff in my life is. No, the kingdom of heaven is full of people who blew it and who know it. And yet have changed their mind and sought mercy from the Lord. I sought the Lord and he answered me is the testimony of brothers and sisters who have entered the kingdom of God, like me, like you, like all of us gathered here today. And so if there is in you, or if there is some attack coming after you, saying, maybe it's too late, would you listen to the teaching of Jesus? Change your mind. Believe in him, as verse 32 says. And you too can enter the kingdom of heaven ahead of the Pharisees, the elders, and the religious teachers. There's a third kind of fruit disease that we need to notice here in this passage. First, good question, but disease shows up in the answers. The second, good answers, but disease shows up in the work. The third kind of problem underneath a lack of fruit. The third kind of problem underneath diseased fruit. The third kind of problem underneath bad fruit. Jesus frames kind of like this. Good work, but disease shows up in the relationship. Notice how the next parable that Jesus tells unfolds beginning in verse 33 Here, another parable. Jesus is still talking to the same group of people, these religious leaders in the temple of his day. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. Doesn't this sound an awful lot like Isaiah chapter 5? Jesus is pulling the picture right out of Isaiah. And he's bringing it to bear on the people in his day who claim to worship God. Verse 34, when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. If you go to the very last chapter of the book of Second Chronicles, you can see how the Hebrew Bible summarizes this whole story that is told in First and Second Chronicles. The Lord sent His prophets again and again and again because of His great compassion. Listen, the Lord is full of patience. Abounding in steadfast love and mercy. And full of compassion, he will send his message again and again and again. But listen carefully. Be careful not to mistake the patience of the Lord. As if it means he's indifferent toward our sin. 
And so in Jesus' story, again, verse 36, he sent, or in verse 37, finally, he sent his son to them saying, surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Which, by the way, is exactly what Jesus has been saying will happen to him in Jerusalem. Go back to Matthew chapter 20. Verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples and on the way he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And then he will be raised on the third day. we see that Jesus is describing exactly what is about to happen to him in less than a week's time from when he spoke these words. In love, he will give his life as a ransom for many. But the religious leaders who claim to worship God in his day, they don't see it so clearly. Jesus, in Jewish fashion, tells this story, and he ends it with a question, verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? When they all agree, verse 41, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death (laughs) and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus is now ready To make his point plain. Verse 42. Jesus says to them. Have you never read in the scriptures? As a bit of a jab. From one religious person to another. Haven't you read the Bible? But the jab. Is just setting up a far more devastating. Blow. Verse 42, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says to those who claimed to worship God in his day and yet did not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Those who claimed to worship God in his day and yet did not bear the fruit of the kingdom. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you. And given to a people producing its fruits. Which, by the way, doesn't mean that we get saved by the amount of fruit we produce. It's the cart and horse issue we sometimes talk about with faith and works. Carts and horses are meant to work together, but there's an order that matters. Carts don't pull horses very well. Horses are really good at pulling carts. 
The same is true in redemption and fruit. The same is true in faith and works. They're related to each other and they're meant to be, but there's an order. Good works don't make us people of faith. Good fruits don't make us saved. But being saved, living a life of faith, is meant to pull something out of us. It's meant to draw out of us fruit in keeping with repentance. To use John the Baptist's phrase, it's meant to pull out of us fruit that the good farmer above will delight in. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And then you see this remark in verse 45. They perceived... That he was speaking about them. As I move toward a conclusion here, I'm not there yet. As I move toward a conclusion, I think there's a question we need to ask ourselves What is Jesus saying to us? Again, these are not the most famous or popular words of Jesus. They're not the friendliest or gentlest words of Jesus. This picture of a stone, this quotation from Psalm 118, the very same psalm, by the way, from which the kids got their song, Hosanna to the Son of David. The song that they were singing on Palm Sunday as we heard about last week. From that very same psalm, Psalm 118, there's this idea of a stone that the builders rejected. And Jesus warns for all who reject this stone, referring to himself. For all who reject this stone, the results will be devastating destruction. A shattering, a crushing. And yet, here again, alongside this heavy message of warning, there is a glimmer of hope. Why? Because the stone that the builders rejected, which will crush those who oppose it. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Um, You could ask Nate or an architect about the history of cornerstones. I'm sure there are people who know more than I do about this sort of thing, but... The idea of a cornerstone is that it sets the direction of everything else in the building. 
It is the first stone put in place around which a glorious and marvelous structure like a brand new temple might be built. And all the other stones in the temple which are being built together, each one of them leans into and lines up with that cornerstone. Which Peter picks up as a picture from Jesus' teaching. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, you also like living stones. You're like bricks. You're like rocks. But I don't mean you're dense and dead. Living stones. You're being built together with Him. Which means that as Peter heard this warning spoken to those who claim to worship God, that if you oppose, if you oppose the Lord's Son, the end will be crushing and devastating. But if you lean on Him and line up your life in reliance upon Him, the result is that we, like living stones, are being built up and being built into and becoming a part of God's new temple as we proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Our lives are being built and united together as we lean on Jesus and line up with him. What is the result? Our lives like a new temple give witness and testimony to the world as we continue praising his name and saying he's the one who's done it all. So, what is Jesus saying to us? Surely, there is a bit of a warning here that we would be foolish to ignore. I mentioned earlier I grew up in Ventura County. I grew up near a road called Grimes Canyon. One of the most dangerous and deadly roads in the United States as it twists and turns with sharp curves through a high canyon over a deep ravine. And all through Grimes Canyon, you see warning sign after warning sign after warning sign. Let me ask you, why are those warning signs there? Not to get you to drive over the edge. The warning signs are there To keep you alive. To tell you the path that leads to life on the other side of the canyon. And in the same way when Jesus uses these sharp words of warning. Why are they here? Not to send you over the edge. But to show you the way that leads to life on the other side of the canyon. Even the warning is here for our good. And so, before that final day of fruit inspection comes, let me ask you, what is the fruit like in your life? Is there fruit in keeping with repentance 
Some of us need to come to conclusions that we've been afraid to come to about Jesus Christ for the first time in our lives. And admit that he's not just some interesting teacher, but he is the one who bears the authority of God. Some of us know all the right answers. But if we're honest, there's a lack of fruit of repentance in our lives. Maybe there's even religious hypocrisy as we keep repeating the right answers and walking in the other direction. Maybe for still others of us, it feels like we're awfully fruitful. It feels like we're doing a lot of things right. But we know that our relationship with God, our relationship with Jesus Christ, is where the disease really sits. Some of us need to check the fruit in our lives, not so that we go over the cliff and give up, but so that we follow the way of life that Jesus has called us into. So that we follow that path and take up our cross daily, denying ourselves. Why? So that we might find that which is truly life together with him. For some of us, why is this here? It's a warning to pay more careful attention to the fruit. And for others, perhaps for you, this passage is here as a reminder that while there may be religious hypocrites in this world who will look down on you as if you're nobody, and while there may be others in this world who oppose you because of your Alignment with Jesus. If you are leaning on Him and lining up your life with the cornerstone, this is the word of encouragement. Isn't this the Lord's doing? And isn't it marvelous in our eyes? That as we change our minds about our past and come to Him, the living cornerstone, and simply lay it all on Him and say, I'll do, I'll, I'm here to get in alignment with you. As we simply lay it all on Him, we get built into what the Lord is building in this world. And we don't walk away full of ourselves saying, look at the fruit that I've grown. Walk away singing the praises of our God who, like a good farmer, loves growing good fruit even in surprising places like my life. And we walk away so grateful for the forgiveness that is found in Him. So grateful for the life that is found in reliance upon Him and in the path that He has called us to. And we walk away saying, as I lean on Him, as I build my life on what He has done for me. Isn't this the Lord's doing? And isn't it marvelous in our eyes? I want to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward.